Awesome. That's a hard act to follow. So good morning, everybody. He is risen. All right. That wasn't bad. Not bad. So, hey, it is uh, so good to see everybody this morning. So kids, uh, before we get going too much further, you guys are dismissed. So like preschool through fifth grade, you guys are going to head out uh, for your activities today. Youth group, you guys are in with us this morning. And uh, we're glad to uh, we're glad to have you. We're actually glad to have all of you guys here. You know, whether you are a regular or whether you're visiting today, whether you were dragged here by your family or brought here by a coworker or by a friend, we're just glad that you're here because we are here to celebrate the fact that Jesus is here as well. He's alive and well today. Hallelujah. Amen. And, and he wants to speak to each and every one of us here this morning. Of course, you know, on this Easter Sunday, we are gathering together, you know, with Christians all over the planet, right? As we all celebrate together, what is really the, the culmination of a series of the three of the greatest events in all of human history? You know, beginning on Friday with the death of Jesus on the cross as the, the full and satisfying payment for our sins, followed by his burial there in the garden tomb, and then the capstone, which we celebrate today, it's his triumphant resurrection from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures foretold. That day in which Jesus really demonstrated his power over death, he conquered sin and death, and he demonstrated his ability to have resurrection life for himself and then to be able to then share that life with each and every one of us simply through our faith in him. And really, it's the, it's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is the, the culmination of, as well, it's the foundation for everything else that Jesus said, everything else that Jesus did. The resurrection is what validates every one of his claims. Today is the day, resurrection day, that he really secured for us all of the blessings that he has to impart to us. And what we want to do is to celebrate that. We want to understand those blessings just a bit better today. Uh, and I want to do it by looking at what I believe is one of the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament that really deals with what Resurrection Sunday really means for us. And we find it kind of in an interesting place. I believe we find this passage right at the outset of chapter 1 of Paul's little letter to the Colossians. It's one of the most powerful of all of the Apostle Paul's letters. And so we're just going to look at three verses in that chapter uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can use. Uh, we have Bibles that you can take home. Uh, if you want to use a Bible on your phone, that's great too. Um, just raise your hand if you want us to bring you a Bible to use today. Um, but let's pray before we uh, actually jump in and start looking at the Word of God. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord. And what a day, Lord. What a, an event. What a miracle, Lord, we celebrate today as we look at the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for his sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for his glorious triumph 
Lord, over sin and death in his resurrection. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we go to your word and as we try to understand really what this event means in each one of our lives personally, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help to illuminate your word to us. Lord, that you would give us understanding that's beyond ourselves, Lord. We pray for ears to hear what your spirit would say to each of us, Lord, as your church corporately, and Lord, to each and every one of us individually. And we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, right? We just looked at the whole of the book of Colossians, and it really wasn't that long ago, and yet I believe that this passage is well worth a second look, especially uh, here on Resurrection Sunday. We remember when we went through Colossians that here Paul's writing this little letter to this little church in this little town of Colossae, but if you remember, they had a big problem. Right? It was a problem that was threatening really to compromise the faith of these brand new believers. Uh, what these false teachers were doing was trying to mix in all kinds of different philosophies to the Christian faith. Philosophies that came from mysticism and philosophies that they dragged in from legalism and an early form of a heresy called Gnosticism. Right, And they tried to just kind of mush all these things up and blend them all together with what the Christians were teaching about Jesus. And all of it, what it did is it diminished the unique person and the work of Jesus. It's so very similar to exactly what it is that we see happening in our culture today. And so Paul pens this very powerful little letter just to try to bring the Colossian believers back to the simplicity of the gospel and the supremacy of Jesus by pointing out that Jesus has done what he alone could do. He has done for us things that no one else could do. And this whole letter, if you've not read it, it just simply explodes with gospel truth, right? It gives life and it brings light into this darkness. And it's just as Paul gets going, there's three little verses that really really become um, foundational bedrock verses for our faith, and especially on an Easter morning. And they so beautifully encapsulate so much of what we're celebrating today. So if you look with me in chapter one, Paul, we're going to jump in in verse 12, where Paul has just kind of concluded his initial words of his letter, as he usually does. He has greeted this church, and he has sort of effectively prayed for this church. And right after that, he makes this powerful statement, right? Because he says that he is doing all of this. It says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Now, does that sound like Easter morning or what? Right, Because he's, he's greeted them and he's prayed for them. And all of a sudden, Paul kind of pivots back to this wonderful moment of this inspired thanksgiving all about the things that God had done for them. 
And that is our entire focus on this Easter Sunday morning. It's on the things that God has done for each of us through Easter. And I think that this is such an important subject, it is well worth our time to consider even yet another time on this Easter morning, because so much of the time when people think about being religious, right, when they think about Easter, when they think about even what the Christian faith is all about, quite often the things that come into their mind are the things that you have to do or the things that you have to stop doing in order to be a Christian. Right? And so in the minds of people, the emphasis just always seems to be on us right? and on what we're doing, on our performance. Again, we have to stop doing that or we have to start doing this. But, you know, that is not at all what Christianity is first and foremost at all about. Because what Christianity is first and foremost all about are the things that God has done. Those are the things that we celebrate today. I've mentioned him before, but there was a great British preacher from the kind of the mid to the, to the late 20th century. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he put it so very well. He put it like this. He said, the idea is as current today as it ever has been, that the message of Christianity is to call us to do something to put ourselves right, or to put the world right, to stop this and to stop that. But the very first principle of Christianity denies that completely. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. Christianity is first and foremost a proclamation of what God has done. That's the Easter message, right? That is Christianity, right? It is first and foremost, it's a proclamation of what God has done. And quite frankly, this is something that most of the church today has missed. And so often you'll go to a church and the preachers are just getting it wrong. I mean, other churches, of course, not this church, right? But you go to a church and all you hear is the message that's coming from the pulpit just comes down to all the things that you're supposed to be doing or all the things that you're not supposed to be doing or how you should be acting or how you're supposed to stop acting. And the focus just becomes always upon what we have to do. Now, as a pastor, right, the, the things that we do do have a place in our Christian lives, but they're not the first place. Right? Because what we do is always a result of something else. It's always a response to something else. It's a response to who we are now in Jesus because of Easter morning. Right? The, the Bible itself, right? and Paul in particular, if you read any of Paul's letters, you know, they lay out in Scripture such a way that there's always an emphasis initially on the things that God has done. You think about Paul's letters like the Colossians or like his letter to the Romans or of course Ephesians. And what you will usually see is that much more than half of the letter as he writes and to any given group of people that he's writing to, that first half of the letter is basically just an exposition of the goodness of God towards us as sinners. And then it's only after doing that, chapter after chapter after chapter, that only then does he come and to call us to respond in a certain way. 
right, where he's already told them about the grace of God and the love of God and how Christ died for us and how God demonstrated that love for us, how that we've now been filled with the Spirit and how there's no condemnation for us anymore and all of those other wonderful truths that we have in Christ. And then he goes on and he says, look, now because this is the case, you can do this. Right? And I know that maybe I'm belaboring the point, but there is a point to my point. And my point is that because the scriptures, the scriptures are very intentionally laid out this way by the Holy Spirit because our relationship with the Lord is very intentionally laid out that way also. That what we do was always meant to simply be a response to what God has already done. God is the initiator and we are the responder. It's not us reaching up to God. It's God reaching down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we keep that perspective so we don't end up with the proverbial cart before the proverbial horse, right? Because we can't live this Christian life any other way than to live in light of what the Lord has already done. And so here in this letter, these believers, they're in danger of drifting away. They're actually in danger of being pulled away from these things. And Paul pulls them right back with these three little verses. And in those verses, you guys saw it, you're a smart group, he gives us five things, right? Five fantastic things that the Lord has done for them as a result of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, five things, that's not an exhaustive list, right? There are plenty of other passages all throughout the New Testament where Paul and the other authors spend a great deal of time giving us way more insight and understanding into what God has done. But I think you'll see this is a pretty powerful list. It's a pretty powerful five things. And the first of those things, again, look back at verse 12, where he says that the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So the very first thing that God has done for us, he has qualified us for our inheritance. Now, we've probably all had some kind of experience in our life where we've been told that we weren't quite qualified for something that we wanted to do. Whatever that was, whether it was we didn't have enough training, we didn't have the right credentials, we didn't have the right experience, right? Some of us may have even had a situation where we've been disqualified for a certain thing. And that's an entirely different thing than just being not quite qualified. Because when you're disqualified, there is something about us that removes us from the running. We're unfit. We are prohibited or, you know, we can't participate or partake in something. And that's the state that we were all in because of our nature when it comes to the inheritance that God has, when it comes to all of these riches that he wants to give us as his children. When we think about just the human condition of our state in what the Bible says that we're born in a state of sin, that's what keeps us from all of that. But the great news of the gospel message, right? The great news of Easter itself is that God has stepped in and he has basically done for us what we couldn't do for, our, for ourselves. He has qualified us through the righteousness of Jesus 
The Bible says that it is imputed, right? Big fancy word. It's basically just an accounting term that means credited. So the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to our account, right? Stamped right there in these big bold letters across our paperwork, if you will, was the word disqualified. But the wonder of the gospel is that God takes that perfect righteousness or the rightness that Jesus has and he places that rightness on our account right at the end of the day on good friday right you know the scene during the crucifixion as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross the bible says that he gave up his spirit and he said it is finished right or tetelestai which is yet another accounting term that literally means paid in full so he stamps his stamp of righteousness across the red stamp of our sin and it now says paid in full that's the whole idea behind what imputed righteousness means it means that there's a righteousness that was outside of us that's now been given to us. And that's the idea when Paul then declares to the Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because outside of Christ, we were disqualified, right? We were, we were condemned. But in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, we are qualified. And now we are heirs of God, the Bible says, and joint heirs with Christ. We are heirs together now with the saints in the light, as Paul says here. In other words, God makes us fit for heaven. Think about that. Did you think you were in any way, shape, or form fit for heaven when you came to know the Lord? But what Paul proclaims here is that because of Easter and because of what Jesus did, God has made us fit for heaven. So the next time that you may doubt or question whether you're good enough or whether you're worthy enough to be part of God's family or worthy enough to truly be one of his heirs and inherit heaven at the end of your life or whether you're worthy enough to actually start enjoying that life here and now on earth, whenever you're in doubt about those things because you're looking at your own sense of failure, I want you to remember Easter morning. I want you to remember the resurrection because that truth cancels out all of the doubt. It cancels out all of the other lies, right? When God looks at your account, he sees qualified, stamped in big red letters, boldly right there across your account, even across my account. Because that is what the work of Jesus Christ, his son, did for us. So number one, he qualified us. And then look at the beginning of verse 13. Paul tells us that he has delivered us. Delivered us from what? Well, from the power of darkness. What the Bible teaches is that there are dark, powerful forces that currently rule the world. And that control the lives of people that are outside of Jesus Christ. John tells us, tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And understanding this, we really shouldn't be surprised 
when we see the world falling apart around us. We wouldn't be surprised when we see all the things that are happening around us, when we see the, the hatred and the violence and the prejudice. We see all these different kinds of things that people do to hurt other people. We shouldn't be surprised because these are simply manifestations of a world that is under the grip of the powers of darkness. And that's where we all were at one time ourselves. We were right there in that place. In Ephesians, it says that we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Wow, Pastor Bill, you had to go with children of wrath, right, on Easter morning. Right? Well, yeah, this is the ugly side of Easter morning, but because of the gospel of Jesus, right? because of the work of Jesus, he has delivered us from that power of darkness. We are no longer held captive by our evil enemy. And I don't know about your experience, but you know, before we were Christians, we didn't even understand this was the case. We didn't know how to explain the condition that we, we were in. We understand now. Right? But as a Christian, we didn't understand that we were bound in sin and unable to free ourselves from that place. Paul tells Timothy that people are under the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So the devil takes people captive. And that's the state that we're all in naturally because of our sin. We're in this bondage to sin. We're under the control of sin and of Satan. And not only, the Bible says, are we bound in sin, but the Bible says that we're blinded by that sin. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that before we came to Jesus Christ, that we were those whose minds the God of this age had blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God should shine on them. So this is all part of the work that the devil is doing, right? He's blinding us to the truth. He's keeping us in this bondage. He's keeping us in this captivity. Aren't you glad you came this morning on Easter? Right? And we don't have any means ourselves of, of liberating ourselves but Jesus, right? But Easter Sunday. And I think back to before I was a Christian, right? Again, now understanding it, but I remember, we all remember doing things that we knew were wrong, things that we maybe even knew were destructive, not only harmful to ourselves, but harmful to other people, but we really didn't know how to stop doing those things. And even at those times when we would make our best efforts, we would find that we simply couldn't. And that is still the story of so many people who are still in bondage to these things. Bondage to drugs or to alcohol or to sex or to hate or, or to fear or whatever it is. Bondage to all of these various destructive lifestyles that are out there. And you know, they, they have these moments where they say, you know what, I feel like I'm in this captivity and I need to get out of this, but they lack the power to do it. The answer is that they need to be delivered from that power. And the only one who has the power to do that for a person is the Lord. And he's proven it through his resurrection that we celebrate here today. 
It is the ultimate triumph over the power of both sin now and of death forever. He is the deliverer. He's the one who comes in and he breaks those chains and he sets us free from the darkness. And then, look at the end of the same verse. Not only does he deliver us from darkness, it says in verse 13 that he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So this is the third incredible thing in our list of five things, and this is a wonderful one. So if you tuned out, tune back in, because you don't want to miss this one, right? Because of the work of Jesus, we have been moved, Paul says, from one dark kingdom into an entirely different and wonderful kingdom. We've been conveyed from one kingdom into the other or conveyed into light and another way to translate that word conveyed is transferred or translated and it's a wonderful word in the original language here because it's a word that was used to describe the deportation of an entire population from one country into another country understand that in those times when one empire conquered another empire the custom was to take the population of the defeated empire and to transfer it completely over to the conqueror's land. And so it's in that sense that Paul says that we have been conveyed into God's kingdom, right? Everything we are, everything we have now belongs to him and we have moved and we now live in a way better neighborhood, amen? Right? The whole experience of the children of Israel in all of the Old Testament, in a sense, is of this spiritual experience. Remember looking at it back in the book of Joshua. God delivered his precious people out of that bondage that they were in in Egypt, and he took them into the promised land of their inheritance. Right? God brings us out so that he can bring us in. Jesus didn't release us from bondage to sin and Satan only to have us wander around aimlessly. But Paul says here that he moved us into his own kingdom of light. That's what the gospel does. That's what Easter Sunday means. Jesus very specifically commissioned the apostle Paul to take this gospel. This is what Paul says in Acts 26. He, Jesus told Paul to take this gospel to the Gentiles. So that's just anybody outside of the Jewish world at the time. Take this gospel to the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what the gospel does. It turns us from darkness, it transfers us out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. Now we've been talking a lot, if you've been here with us in our study through Mark, about this kingdom of God, right, which Jesus came to usher in. And it was on that first Easter Sunday morning that he did that. And he didn't do that, right? Because here's the thing, an interesting reality we need to understand about the kingdom of God is that it is both already here and not yet fully here. Does that make sense? 
Probably not. So the kingdom of God is a very present reality today for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, right? You have been transferred even now into this kingdom and out of that other kingdom. But God's kingdom on earth is not here yet in its fullness. It will one day be here in its fullness during the millennium. Right, that time, as it says in Habakkuk, where the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord, right, as waters cover the sea. So that's the promise of the prophets, right? We saw ourselves in the revelation when Jesus Christ will come and rule and reign physically on earth from in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David and ruling over the house of Jacob, right? These are all of these promises and prophecies that have to be fully and finally fulfilled. But even today, at this point, that kingdom of heaven is already around us. It's among us who put our faith in Jesus. We are part of that kingdom even now on earth. So think of it this way, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God it's any sphere where the kingship of Jesus Christ is acknowledged in our lives and is manifested through our lives, right? So we today are kind of split kingdom living, right? We're sort of living in two different kingdoms. We are still very much having to live in this kingdom of the world that's under the dominion of Satan, but we are now citizens of this new, wonderful kingdom of God, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world because we are of this new kingdom, right? A kingdom of light and a kingdom of life and a kingdom of love. And what we as God's people are to do is to remember we're no longer part of that dark kingdom, but we've been transferred into this new kingdom and we now live and we now operate in a whole different kind of an atmosphere. It has a whole different type of a lifestyle, a completely different way of thinking about things and of doing things and of us treating one another and relating to one another. And it's the church today, right? Church, we are the visible presence of that beautiful kingdom in the world today. We are the representatives of Jesus here on this earth and we are perfectly positioned now at this moment to speak the heart of Jesus into this culture that is in crisis. And when we think about this picture that Paul is presenting us with here, these two kingdoms, think about the power here, right? The, the, the vast majority of the people that we come in contact with are still there in the kingdom of darkness. There's this beautiful manifestation of the kingdom of heaven all over the world. What is it? It's local church bodies just like this that are gathering together and they're worshiping and they're serving and they're living in community together. And what people ought to be able to do is to see that there is a stark contrast between these two kingdoms. And when they do come in here into our midst, when they peek inside the room and kind of peer at us from across the way, they should be able to look and say, I can't figure those people out, but that is a whole different thing that I see going on over there. 
it should be so very beautiful and so very attractive that they want to transfer in, that they want to transfer out of that kingdom that they're in and into this light and life and love and purity and beauty and revelation and understanding, right, and, and energy. That's the kingdom of Christ. It's a kingdom of life. It's not a dead kingdom. And what is so unfortunate is that for so many years, the church has just modeled this kind of a deadness or a dryness, right? That's not Easter, right? That's not the, the kingdom of Christ is full of life and joy and peace, and it's full of love. Just as it says here that he is the son of his love. If there was any place at all in the world today where people ought to see that, Right, that difference between the world and the church, it's in this whole realm of love. And what's so interesting is that so many people who get caught up in these various lifestyles that are unbiblical, right, or they get caught up in these movements or these communities, they get drawn in oftentimes because they say that they feel accepted by those people. They, they say they feel loved by that community because they believe in the same things, right? Where maybe they didn't feel that love from the church. But what people ought to be able to sense from us is even though there might not always be an agreement on things or an affirmation of all things, but they ought to be able above all those things to be able to sense that we truly love them beyond those differences and in spite of those things, we love them right where they are in the midst of the struggle that we know that they are in. Right? We've been transferred into this kingdom. And these people, right, these broken people, just like we were, they are peering in to find out what it's like. And let's just remember, church, God didn't ask any of us to clean up our act before he brought us into his kingdom. Amen? He brought us in broken as we were, and he is still working on cleaning us up. Right? He did for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. He qualified us. He delivered us out of the power of darkness. He conveyed us into his kingdom. And then fourthly, he redeemed us from our bondage. Look at verse 14. He, Paul says that we have redemption through his blood. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And that word, it's a very specific word. It has the idea to pay a price for something and specifically to buy something back. And the story of biblical redemption and the, the message of the gospel itself that we're celebrating on Easter, it begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter, no, that's a joke. I wouldn't do it. It starts back there because the gospel story is really that God created the world and he created humanity. He created mankind to live in this perfect relationship with him, but man betrayed God, basically took sides with the enemy, then actually came to be under the control of the enemy, living as captives. And what God does through Jesus is he buys us back out of that situation. He redeems us. And that specific word redeemed, it is the word that was used for the purchase of a slave. And more specifically, the purchase of a slave in order to give them their freedom. 
right? Before we came to know the Lord, each and every one of us was right up there on that slave block. And we stood there in the same way that slaves have stood there through the ages. We stood there up on a platform to have people bidding on the basis of what they thought we were worth. Whatever they thought we would be useful for, whether it was for labor or to be a lawyer or to be a doctor or a teacher. Remember, in that time, some slaves were actually some of the most educated in the society. But they were slaves because they had a debt. They had no freedom, and so they were vulnerable to whoever out there in the audience had enough money to pay for them and to bring them into that particular bondage. And that's what the devil had done to each and every one of us until Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up on the scene, and he paid that great price to remove us from the slave market. The Lord Jesus, as it were, he put a price tag on each one of us. And how highly was, did he value us? Well, in effect, he said, I value them so highly. They are so very precious to me that I am willing to shed my own blood and give my own life to purchase them and to set them free. That's what God has done. He's redeemed us. And he did it at a high price, right? The highest price the very life of his only son and the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Paul, uh, Peter says that we were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So it was his life for our life. It was his perfect life for our sinful life. That was the price. And the result of it, Paul tells us at the end of that same verse, look at verse 14 again. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. God has forgiven all of our sins. He has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. And you notice that the Spirit speaking here through the Apostle Paul, he seems to save this one for last because it is the big one. Right? The forgiveness of sins is the basis on which all the rest of God's work on our behalf rests. Right, That we can be or that we have been forgiven of our sins. You know, sin is a serious issue that we don't like to think about. And we don't like to talk about. And nobody in their right mind would talk about on Easter Sunday. Right? Not when visitors are here. But the Bible says that sin is this destructive principle that's constantly at work eroding away at the entire creation. It's at work in every single person, right? Individual sins and the result of the, that principle being played out in our lives. You, did you know that sin is the root cause of all the trouble and all the problems in the world yesterday, today, and tomorrow? All of the trouble is connected back to this issue of sin all of our problems are rooted right here in sin because sin is the thing that separates us from God. Right? The most simple way to describe sin is it's the act of going against God and his ways. And so, of course, it makes sense that when we're going against someone or something that we're separating ourselves from it. Right? So by definition, our sin separates us from God. Speaking through Isaiah, the Lord said, 
Behold, the, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, which is a fancy Bible word for sin, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. But the wonderful news of the gospel, right, the good news of Easter Sunday is that all of that has been completely remedied through what Jesus did for us through his death and his burial and his resurrection. All of those sins that separated us from God, those things that kept us from hearing his voice and from experiencing his love and from knowing him and having that sense of his wonderful presence in our life and his, his hand of mercy over us and his guidance for us, all of the things that kept us from experiencing all of that, those things have all been taken away out of the way. Our sins have been completely and totally forgiven and what a wonderful thing that is for each and every one of us because everybody has this same sin problem. It says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and you can look it up yourself. In the original language the word all means what? It means all. All. Every one of you. Now, some people's sins are more blatant, right? They're more obvious. They're more notorious. But for other people, you know, their sins might not always be so easy to see. But the truth of the matter is that we all sin and all of our sin separates all of us from God. Because here's the thing that God is more, he's not just concerned about the things that we do that are wrong. It's everything that we think that's wrong. It's everything that we desire that's wrong. Those are the things that first and foremost fall so short of God's highest for us. And you think about all through each of the different gospel accounts, Jesus was constantly at odds with the Pharisees, right? With the religious leaders of the day because they thought they were already righteous. They thought they were already holy. They were so incredibly incensed that Jesus would even insinuate that they were sinful because outwardly at least, they hadn't done anything that they thought was all that bad. And that's why Jesus had to explain to them and to everyone else in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, for example, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, you might think you're pure just because you've never committed the act of adultery, but it goes so, so much deeper than that. And he goes on and he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So you might think that you're nice and that you're forgiving and that you're loving and that you'd, ever you'd never actually hurt anybody and you certainly would never murder anybody. But you know what? If you hate somebody in your heart, you have murdered them. That's the standard. That's God's holy, righteous standard. And I hope that we can all agree we have all fallen so short of that. And so often I think that for us, 
We don't appreciate our own forgiveness like we should. We don't extend forgiveness and, and love to other people like we should when they've sinned because we have forgotten or maybe we never realized just how much we've been forgiven and how very serious sin is. Sin is cancer. It's eating away at us from the inside out. Right? It's destroying our souls and our minds, and it's causing us to think things and to do things that are destructive. But this is what sin is, and our sin, whether we're conscious of it or not, it weighs us down. It's a burden to us because sins are actual crimes against a holy God, and they place this burden of guilt on each one of us because we know it deep down inside how guilty we are, right? The burden is real because we are guilty and living under that burden becomes intolerable. And ultimately, it's not tolerable at all, but Jesus, right? But Easter, we have forgiveness for all of that because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the proof, his resurrection is the proof that he can provide that to us just like he promised he would. Right, that he can free us from all of that. Right? Forgiveness basically means to send something away. Again, it's that idea of canceling a debt. And Jesus paid that price on the cross so that it never has to be paid again. The account is settled and closed. God has not only forgiven it, but that beautiful statement in Psalm 103 that says that as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed my transgressions from me. He has set us free. He's transferred us to this new kingdom, right? He's canceled these debts so that we can't ever be enslaved again. Satan can't dig anything up on you from the files, right? He can't try to reconvict you in the eyes of God because all of those things have been sent away because of Easter morning. So we've been qualified for this inheritance. We've been delivered from the power of darkness. We've been conveyed into this new kingdom. We've been redeemed back to God. We've been forgiven for our sin. Five things in three verses. That is a considerable amount of work that God has done. And that he alone has invested into each and every one of our lives. And now what was our part in any of that? What did we do? Well, we sinned, we failed, and then we simply brought all of that sin and we brought all of that failure and we brought it to the foot of the cross. And then we simply receive this forgiveness that is offered so freely. All that we brought to this equation was our brokenness. And so Paul, in this whole passage, he says, look at all the work that God has done on your behalf that absolutely could not have been done by anyone else. And then there's just this sense of this deep debt as we start to truly comprehend and to understand and to appreciate and then to have it spelled out in a passage like this, we can't help but just overflow with this sense of gratitude and joy just like Paul is doing here. Because look back quickly at the very first words of our very first verse. Look at verse 12 where the apostle Paul is writing all of this that he's written. 
by all of this deep gospel truth, all of this Easter truth, he writes it all under the banner of, what are the first words there? He says, giving thanks to the Father. When we start to really understand, deep down understand all that God has done for us, we just want to live in this perpetual state of heartfelt thanksgiving. And that's really the main message of any Easter morning. It's be thankful. If you don't remember anything else I said this morning, and that's okay, some of you won't, just remember this, just be thankful for all that the Lord has done. Just soak that in. Let that just fill you up and it will be enough on an Easter Sunday morning. And the next time you start to doubt or you start to question or you start to feel worried or threatened or you're anxious about something, about some circumstance in your life or about something that's looming in the future, think back to these things that God has already done in bringing you to this point and simply be thankful for those things. And then as a bonus... Maybe remember what Paul said to the Romans. In Romans 8, in light of all these things we've looked at today, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's not about what we do for God. It never was. It's all about what he's done for us. It always was and it always will be. And aren't we thankful for that? So that may raise, for some of you who are here today, it may raise a very important question, and that's how can I have this stuff you've been talking about today? You're thinking, I want all of these things in my life. I want these first five things and all those other things that you said there were. I want the Easter story to be, to be my story. Right? Well, Jesus answered that question And he explained that what you need is to be born again. Billy Graham didn't make that word up. Jesus did. You need to be reborn spiritually so that you can be reconnected to God and enjoy all of these blessings. So how can someone be born again? Well, the kids answered that one, right? Before I even got up here. Actually, they borrowed the answer from Jesus. He answered it first. Right? In the most well-known words in all the Bible just happen to concern how to be born again. And it's in the book of John, chapter 3, in verse 16, where Jesus declared, you can read it with me if you want, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have as their everlasting life. That is how a person is born again. Here's a fun fact for you on Easter Sunday. Did you know that the Bible is the most read book in the history of the world? And did you know that the Gospel of John is the most read book in the Bible? And did you know that chapter 3 is the most read chapter of the most read book in the Bible. And did you know, you know where I'm headed, right? That verse 16 is the most read verse of the most read chapter of the most read book of the most read book 
in all of human history. And the point to all of this is that those words that we just read, right, this verse, these are the most read words in all of human history. Because this verse, right, these words that Jesus spoke are the single most important words that any human being will ever hear in the course of their lifetime. And that includes you and it includes me this morning. Right? That God so loved the world, that is you, every one of us, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, Right, that whosoever or that whoever, right, that's us again. Whoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible explains that we become born again first simply by accepting what God says about us, accepting the fact that the Bible says, as we've talked about at length this morning, that we are sinners. And that we need a savior. We need someone to deliver us from that. And then we're willing to repent or to change our mind. To change the direction that we were headed. And now to head in God's direction. And then to put our faith in Jesus Christ. That his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive us of our sins. And it's when a person trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins, that it's at that point that the single greatest miracle known to mankind occurs. And that is that God himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, he comes then to live inside of us and he regenerates us and we are born again. We experience this spiritual rebirth that is every bit as real as was our physical birth. And in an instant, all of these things that we have talked about this morning, all of these things that God has done for us through Easter, those things will now become yours. That's the gospel. Right? That's the message of Easter morning. Amen? So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now and to start ministering. And we're going to pray. And as we do, if you're here today and you've yet to take that first step, right? if you've yet to put yourself into that verse, John 3.16, and you've yet to make that kind of a confession or a commitment to the Lord, you don't need to know all of what the Bible says, all you need to know is that you need to be forgiven. All you need to know is that you need to be delivered and he will do that for you. And if that's you this morning, you can say a prayer to your, you know, in the privacy of your own heart to the Lord. You can also come up. Pastor Jeff is here and Pastor Chris is going to end up over there. And uh, you can ask one of those pastors to pray with you. Um, if one of the women would prefer a woman to pray with you, you can come up and we'll have one of the ladies join them. Um, but don't let this morning go by. If the Lord is stirring your heart this morning, respond to that. And don't let another day be wasted outside of Christ. Don't be in the wrong kingdom any longer than you have to. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday. And we thank you for all that it means in our lives, Lord. We thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. We had no part in any of this except to be in a condition where we so desperately need you. So, Father, I do pray that if there are those this morning who are here that have yet to, to cry out to you, Lord, and, and to bring their sin and to simply lay it down at the foot of the cross, Lord, to unburden themselves. I pray that you would stir them up in their hearts, Lord, that you would draw them unto yourself, Lord, that you would either meet them right where they are, Lord, or that you'd bring them forward if they need someone to pray with them. <coughs> Father, for the rest of us, Lord, <coughs> I pray simply this morning that we would be thankful for Resurrection Sunday. Lord, and we thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, <coughs> Amen is what they said. <coughs> Let's stand and worship the Lord. <coughs>